Hello, church. It is, I like what you've done with the place. No more drum set up here. It's nice and clean. I just want to thank you on behalf of my whole family. For some of you that, most of you all know, we, we were, had the privilege to be uh, on sabbatical this summer. So this is our second week back, but um, first time kind of being able to address everyone. And I just want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank the pastors and the elders, the, the deacons, the staff, but also just the church as a whole. Um, it was a time away, and uh, we really do feel rested and refreshed. And uh, throughout the whole summer, I was reminded multiple times and, and throughout just how kind of a gift that you gave to us. And we are very grateful, and we're very thankful. And uh, I'm excited to be back and to in- jump back in. Um, and even this morning, getting the, getting the call later in the week to, to preach, but excited to be here. And so we, we thank you from Kirsten to Trevor, to Kaya, to Amelie, to Talia, and myself. We are deeply thankful to Maranatha for that time away. Um, but even as we were away, I was just reminded about how much I am glad that school has started. Uh, I don't know about you. I don't naturally move to routine. I... I need routine and structure imposed on me, and when it is, that actually brings about helpful uh, flourishing for me. And I don't know about you, but when, when the kids are out from school, I love being with them, but like, there's, they don't have to be at school on a certain time. Time getting up, time going to bed, and everything's in flux. There's no normal routine, and if you're anything like me, it's easy then to drift away from healthy, like healthy routines that, that mark your normal day. And as a result, you just kind of begin to drift. The same thing happens in our spiritual life too, doesn't it? That we naturally, if we, if we don't engage with the spiritual things on a regular basis, that we do not have routines and rhythms, what happens is we drift. So if you think about a little boat out in the water that is not anchored to anything, it drifts. And that's a lot like how we are with the things of the Lord, that if we are not per, uh, persistently and intentionally pursuing him, we will drift. So how do we hold fast to the anchor? Hebrews 6.18 says that Jesus is our anchor. The writer, of, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold fast to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain, it, it leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The way that we hold on fast to Christ is to to hold fast to what he has accomplished and the hope that accompanies what he has accomplished. Christians, we are to be a hopeful people. Mary, like Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines hope this way. It's to cherish a desire with anticipation. But, but we know that, that, that that type of hope is kind of like, I hope it happens. Just like when you, if you were to buy a lottery ticket and you scratch, I hope it's a winner. There's a cherished desire in anticipation, but we all know the answer is it's not a winner. It, 
Hope, as it's talked about in the world, is, is a desire, but it's not a guarantee. That isn't what Christian hope is. The Baker Compact Dictionary of Theological Terms defines hope this way. It's the optimistic view and anticipation of the future based on the conviction that God is sovereignly directing the course of this world to fulfill his purpose, promised consummation of all things in Christ. It's still this, this anticipation, it's still this cherished desire, but do you see where the ground is, where the anchor is? It's in the very nature of God himself, who sovereignly, sovereignly rules over all the world. And he has promised that all things would find their completion and fulfillment in the risen and reigning Christ. That's where our hope is unique. It isn't just a cherished desire. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee because the one in whom we hope is God himself. This hope is the anchor for our souls. It is the finished work of Jesus that gives us this solid ground of hope to stand on. And when we hold fast to Christ and allow him to be our true north, we will not drift. Rather, we will be transformed. A scholar who's passed away a long, long time ago named A.T. Robertson says this, commenting on this passage, he says, just like an anchor on a boat... The anchor may be out of sight, but it holds nonetheless. If you've ever been on a boat that has dropped an anchor, especially if you've ever been in water in New Jersey, I often, I grew up down near Ocean City, I often describe the, what the water looks like in Ocean City as iced tea. It's not clear. If you've ever been in the water, then you drop an anchor, you might see it for the first couple inches, and then it's, it's dark all the way down. But if it grabs hold of the bottom, if it grabs hold of the solid ground on the bottom, it will hold even though you can't see it. This is the type of hope that's meant to mark our lives, even when we can't see the anchor due to it being too deep, the seas being too rough, when life gets hard, unsteady, and overwhelming, which I'm sure for many of you, even this past week, you felt the hardness of life, the unsteadiness of life, the overwhelming nature of life. And we feel it each week often, just like the, the, the first readers of the book of Hebrews were feeling it. The writer of Hebrews is writing to an, an audience to try to anchor them in Christ, that they would to hold fast so that they would not drift, but rather hold fast in hope and in steadfastness to Christ. The book of Hebrews is a call to stay the course in Jesus, to not drift away. It's a call to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That phrase haunts me. I often think I can handle sin and I can manage it, but the writer of Hebrews reminds us it's deceitful. We think we can hold it and manage it. He goes, sin is deceitful and it pulls us away. It's a call to stay the course and hold fast and not try to arrange our lives like we're this boutique-style Christianity and religiosity where we kind of cultivate our, our, 
the, 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 the Christianity that we want. I'll take a little bit of here, a little bit of there, a little bit of this thing over here, and I get to create my own little Jesus and my own little Christianity that kind of fits my lifestyle. He says, you will sink. You will drift away if that's how you're pursuing it. Instead, he grounds them in this book by showing them that over and over again that Jesus is better. And he's the sole object of our hope. He's worthy to be the sole object of our hope. It's interesting. I, uh, I remember D, listening to D.A. Carson talk about the book of Hebrews. And he says, it's, it's easy to just say Jesus is best and let's move on. But he never says, the book never says that Jesus is best. He keeps saying he's better, he's better, he's better. And the cumulative effect means he's really much better. He truly is the best. He begins in chapter 1 and 2 saying he's better than angels. That Jesus is better than Moses. Then in chapter 3, we see that he's better than Joshua. Then he's better than Aaron, the priest. Then he's better than the entire Levitical priesthood. He establishes a better covenant, a, a, a binding uh, relationship between him, God and his people. He offers a better sacrifice and welcomes us into a better sanctuary. In, in the passage that we're going to look at today, though, in chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, so if you have a Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 7, we'll see that the reason we can have a strong and steady hope is because Jesus is a better high priest. He's a better high priest than any of the, the Levitical priests, high priests that served in the tabernacle and the temple. Jesus is the high priest, brings us into the very presence of God and intercedes for us. This is his unique role as high priest. If you recall, the priesthood in the Old Testament was, was a critical feature of the life of God's people. The, the, the priest mediated God's abiding presence with his people. God appointed the descendants of Levi to carry on this task. You might remember when they came into the land, everyone, every one of the tribes gets a section of land except the tribe of Levi. They are devoted to God and to serve as priests. <clears throat> and my voice really cracked there, didn't it? They were to serve as priests that helped, that would oversee the, the mediating presence of God for all the other tribes. And out of this lot, there was a high priest. The high priest was the, the, the top priest, and he was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctuary. That, where, where that was where the Ark of the Covenant, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant was held, and in there was the, the, the tablets, the covenant the promise, that was the binding agreement between God and his people. And it was, it was in the ark and at the mercy seat where these, I was just reading this past week, where, where Solomon had this gold, the, 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 the ark had this beautiful golden cover with angels uh, guarding it. And that was the mercy seat of God. It, it, it simmered, that's where God scraped the pavement. That's where his presence dwelt in. And the whole high priest once a year on Yom Kippur. Some of us just like getting off of school or out of work that day. But that's a really important day in the life of Israel. 
In fact, it's a, it's a high holy day. It's the Day of Atonement. And on that one day, the high priest would enter into the, the Holy of Holies, into the inner sanctuary, and he would stand before God's presence, the, the, the symbol of God's presence on behalf of the people. He would then come out and offer sacrifices for the people. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. But this only happened once a year. The high priest had this tremendous privilege, but it was limited. Jesus, however, as we just read in the end of chapter 6, in verse 18 and 19, uh, 19 through 20, that Jesus has entered behind that curtain. He stands perpetually now in God's presence as a better high priest. So what follows in chapter 7, what we're going to see is a complicated chapter. It's dense. I, I realize this is my first time preaching in a long time. And I picked a very long, very complicated chapter. But I think when we understand what it unpacks, it will pay off dividends for us. So I want to walk through the chapter, chapter 7, and looking at it at these three points. The first, if you want to take notes, Jesus the high priest, who is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus the high priest, who is in, in the order of Melchizedek, if you spell it correctly, you get extra points. Two, Jesus the best, better high priest. Jesus the better high priest. And three, Jesus my high priest. And I want to just give a little disclaimer as we jump in. The first two points are swimming in some heavy theology. All right? Would you stick with me? Because I think when we understand that theology... It is transformative. And that's the last, the last point is really trying to apply this to our lives. So would you stick with me? And let's just ask for the Lord's help as we begin. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We thank you that you have given us this dense chapter, but this chapter is beautiful. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus in all his beauty, even as he is our high priest. We ask that you would help us by your spirit for your glory and our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So number one, Jesus the high priest. In the end of chapter six, where, where the passage I opened up reading, that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He, he, the author has brought up this guy Melchizedek several times already. He mentions him in chapter four mentions them in chapter 5, and again in chapter 6. And they're all references to the passage that Randy read in Psalm 110. But in our chapter, he unpacks what this priestly order of Melchizedek is all about. And to explain, the author takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. You can turn there if you want, but it's chapter, Genesis chapter 14. If you want to just note it for later, uh, in, in chapter 7, he actually gives a little bit of a, uh, an explanation of, or a summary of Genesis 14. 
But in Genesis 14 is where we hear about this mysterious character called Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears on the scene almost out of nowhere after a battle between tribal groups. What happens, and you can read about this in Genesis 14, a group of kings got together and had in their mind to attack another group of tribes. Among the groups that the, 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 the tribes that were overcome and taken away was Abraham's nephew Lot. So Lot got caught in the middle, and he, he's part of the spoils of war and being carried away. And, and, but in, that, in the melee and all that chaos, a man escapes and runs back to Abraham and says, Abe, your nephew, he's in the group. And Abraham, then, wealthy man, lots of servants, gathers 318 of his men and goes, we're going to war. And they pursue these, uh, these, these kings of these tribes. They, don't, they not only catch up to them, but they slaughter them. And they recover all the stolen goods and all their kin, all the families that were lost. Now, after this fight, Abraham is met by this man, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek appears by bringing bread and wine for Abraham. And then after he gives him this bread and wine to refresh him, he blesses him. And after receiving this blessing, Abraham takes a tenth of, of, of the spoils and gives it to Melchizedek as a way of tribute. He gives a, a tithe to Melchizedek. So now we have that backstory. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to begin, again, I'll begin in verse 19, and then I'm going to read through verse 3. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place before, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Um, let's stop there. So this guy Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews, probably studying Psalm 110, and also going back to Genesis 14, considers this man. He's mysterious. His name, he says, and, and we get that definition, by definition of his name, he's the king of righteousness. Melech means king in Hebrew, and Zedek is righteousness in Hebrew. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of Salem, which is ultimately what's going to become Jerusalem. It's a Canaanite city, and that's also where we get the, the, it's a connection to the word shalom, the peace word that was often said. 
So he's a king of righteousness and a king of peace. That's what his name means. And that he is a, a priest of God. Now it's important to remember that he is a priest, not just a, a pagan priest, but a priest of the Most High God. And this is before Moses. This is before Levi. This is before the temple and tabernacle. Melchizedek is a priest of God before there was an institutional priesthood that we would read about later in the Old Testament. But... After Melchizedek is introduced this way, we don't hear anything about this priestly order until David writes about it in Psalm 110. In the meantime, <clears throat> the Levitical priesthood is established and it plays a vital role in the people, the life of the people of God. So we have this priesthood after this guy, Melchizedek, this order of a priest like Melchizedek's. And he goes on in verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, let's think about who this guy is. He is without father or mother or genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end. But he's a priest forever. So there have been scholars that have said, well, who is this guy? Some think that he's like an angelic being that appears on the scene, much like that would appear to Abraham just before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, if you recall that story. But I don't think that's right. The text doesn't give that hint. Some understand this to mean that Melchizedek is a Christophany or an appearance of the second person of the Trinity before the Incarnation. But I think if we recognize where we read of Melchizedek, there's a simpler and better explanation. I don't think that's, uh, that's a, what Melchizedek is. I don't think he's, a, he's an appearance of, of the second person of the Trinity, a Christophany. I think that spoils the surprise of the Incarnation. But it also, there's a better explanation. If you've ever read through the book of Genesis, you'll notice one thing. Everything has a, everyone is born, everyone is listed when they died, and everyone's family is told about. Right? There's genealogies, so-and-so begot this person, he lived so-and-so many years, then he died. Then they had this son, and he lived so many so many years, and then he died. Everyone has parents, everyone has a beginning, everyone has an end in the book of Genesis, except for Melchizedek. The writer, of author, uh, the writer of Hebrews is going, that's something. And he sees how Melchizedek resembles Christ. Jesus actually didn't have a beginning or an end. He is the eternal one. Yes, he has a, a mother as he comes in the incarnation, but as the divine second person in the Trinity, no, Jesus has no beginning and end. He has no father. No one begot Jesus, uh, or the, the second person in the Trinity. The Trinity is eternal with no beginning and no end. And because we don't know when he dies, Melchizedek, it seems like he's in this office of priesthood year after year. It goes on forever. 
And this is exactly the way that Christ is. He never dies. He rose again to never die again. And he reigns in this, this role as high priest forever. See, way back in Genesis, God has laid the groundwork for what the Messiah would be. The type of high priest that would be the, the best one. That would, that would bring us to Christ. You see that Melchizedek resembles Jesus, not Jesus resembling Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type that points us forward to Jesus. And so we see that this this priesthood is unique. Let's go back to the passage in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from, the, from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had, paid, who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. If I move this down, will it stop thumping maybe? Sorry. That was a heady passage. Heady paragraph. If you have a Bible, walk with it through me. Do you see how great this man was? That Abraham the patriarch. It's hard to inflate the the importance to to God's, the, the Israelites, the importance of Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch. He is the, the, the head of this covenant promise that was given to God's people. He is a massive deal. But he, he's a, do you see how great this man is that Abraham gave, paid tribute to Melchizedek? That, that God had given the promises of the covenant to Abraham... But Abraham is honoring Melchizedek. Melchizedek receives the the tithe. He also blesses him. If you think about, remember in the Old Testament, that Abraham blesses Isaac. Isaac blesses Jacob. Jacob blesses his sons. The, 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 The older, superior, always gave blessing to the younger, the inferior. It was not the other way around. And Melchizedek received that tithe, received that blessing. And he makes this connection. He's following the line of logic and he says, so if Abraham is that great and Levi is in his descendant, he's in his loins, he's not yet been born, but he's of the tribe. So he's going to be lesser than Abraham because he's going to come later. If Abraham's giving tithes to Melchizedek, It's like Levi and all the priests that would come after him are giving tithes to Melchizedek. And if you 
as we said, the, the, the Levites were not given land, but that rather they, they, they relied on all the other tribes to bring tithes and offerings, and that helped to let them live. But it was based upon the support of all the other tribes. So all the other tribes of Abraham and, and, and all the other tribes of Jacob would all give tithes to Levi, and they would receive them. But Abraham, and then through him, Levi are giving these tributes, these tithes to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek is of greater status. I'm not very good at math, but here's the, here is, here's the equation, all right? I think we have it up here. Big ups to H. Day for making this for me. <clears throat> Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and if Jesus is in the priestly order of Melchizedek, he is logically greater than Levi. That's the argument that the author is making. But why does it matter? And that brings us to our second point. Jesus, the better high priest. Go back to the passage in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the law, through the Levitical priesthood, rather, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Christianity is not a new religion. It's rather the fulfillment of all the God's promises and plans that are laid out in the Old Testament. We can think of Jesus when he says that in his own words, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If you were to give a read through the Old Testament, what you would see is exactly what the writer is saying here. That, the, that the, though the law was given and it was good, it didn't create a perfect society. Paul Zoll, um, in this book called Grace and Practice Theology for, in Everyday Life, he says this, the law of Moses which in my theology is the law of God, is upright and beautiful. It is perfect, true, and righteous altogether. That's Psalm 19. But it does not create the state that it requires. The, the law itself, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, could not produce perfect people. And if you just read through the Old Testament, you'll see it in droves. So the question should be, why then did God give us a law? What good is it if it can't produce what we need, if it can't produce perfection? The Apostle Paul gives us an answer in Galatians 3. He says this, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law and the Levitical priesthood were given by God so that his people could remain in his holy presence. God said, I'm going to be your, your God and you're going to be my people. But they were sinful. The law helped them, one, to, through the sacrifices to, to God overlooked sin in the, in, by receiving those sacrifices of bulls and goats. And that the priesthood mediated that presence with God's people. But it was never complete. The sacrifices for sin needed to be made even by the priests themselves all the time. Even the sacred and special day of atonement was incomplete. It was repeated year after year. And the priests were not only limited by their own sinfulness and their own imperfection, 
But they were mortal. They were going to die. You need a new priest year after year, new high priest year after when they died, when the high priest died. And if you would see, we, we, if you look at children's Bibles, you see like the sacrifices. It's all the, 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 the priests are wearing like the very white, white outer garments, tunics, and white turbans. It would have been a bloodbath. They're butchers. The smell of sin offerings would rise. It would have been rank blood on the ground. It would not be a pretty. It was a picture of yours, our sin that is perpetually keeps us from God. This, but by God's grace, he gives this priesthood and these ways by which to mediate for a time. The priesthood was temporary. It was a way that God condescended to show grace, to prepare us for the true high priest. So if the priesthood was temporary, so the law that introduced it was too. What we see is in this picture of the Old Testament and the, the law and the covenant and the temple and the priesthood, we see God's holiness and we see our desperate need for his grace. And this is precisely the grace that God gives through the coming of this second order of priests. It was a planned paradigm shift. In simple terms, Christ's role as the high priest and his perfect sacrifice deal with the problem of sin in a way that the Levitical priest could, could never do. Indeed, the law and the priesthood were so connected that a change of the priesthood meant that, the law, that there was a change in the law or a change in cov covenant. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken, Christ, belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning the bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of, it, of him, this is quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The second order of priests, this Melchizedekian order, is not like the sons of Aaron from the Levitical tribe. Jesus is from a tribe that Moses never spoke of that they were going to serve at the altar. The tribe of, what is it? Yeah, he's from the tribe of Judah. They were to be the kings. The scepter would not leave Judah's hand, Jacob says, on his deathbed to Judah, his son. The descendants of Judah were not priests, but were by prophecy, and again, a historical fact, the tribe of the kings, David. The Messiah is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is significant because what we see in the Old Testament also is that the kings and the priests were not to be occupied by the same person. They were unique offices. But in Psalm 110, if you want to turn back there, what we'll see is what David saw. David, studying God's word, reading Genesis, 10, uh, Genesis 14, most likely, Considering this story, sees something really significant about Melchizedek, which would be a distinctive marker of the coming Messiah. Namely, 
that he would be a priest king who will reign forever. A priest king like Melchizedek. And this one, it is said, will serve as a priest not on the basis of bodily descent, that is, because he's a descendant from Aaron and Levi, but on an indestructible life. Melchizedek didn't have a beginning and end. Jesus rose again, never to die again. His life is now indestructible. He's the risen Christ. And it is based on this indestructible life that he will continue in his office as high priest forever. He never gets tired of it. He never gets bored of it. He never get, passes on from this into something else. He continues forever as a high priest. If you were to look at Psalm 110, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's really significant. It's quoted about Jesus as the, as the fulfillment. And it begins by, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter uses this in his, in his um, Pentecost sermon. That Jesus would... Uh, Rise again and ascend to the throne and sit on the throne at the right hand of the Father. We see the king. But later on, as he moves down, we see in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Priest. Jesus is made to be the priest of Psalm 110 because he is the person described in Psalm 110 verse 1. He who presently sits at the right hand of God alone can be the priest. He alone can be the priest forever. The authority of Christ's priesthood depends on his identity as the Son of God. Melchizedek was pointing us to Jesus. And this is what the, the author is showing us that he's better because he stands forever in his post. He was, he was made such by an oath. This is what we see in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests, that's the, tribe, the Levitical priesthood, were made such without an oath. But this one, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. See that the old priesthood, the former commandment is set aside because it was weak. It couldn't change hearts, only behavior. The law was powerless to change hearts. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in, the body, in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin. It was through the, the Old Testament covenant, the old covenant, that God's presence was able to dwell with his people. But it was, it was also meant to keep them at a distance. 
The old covenant kept God's people at a distance. It was at a safe distance. You might recall Sinai. When Moses goes up, no one is to touch the mountain or they're going to die. God's holiness was, was palpable. But through this priestly office, we have a better hope and a better covenant because he's a better priest. And what does he do? He welcomes us to draw near to God. Not just stay at a safe distance, but he says, come up close. Come find your rest. Come abide. Come sit in the very presence of God, not just in his holiness, not just in his righteousness, but knowing the full measure of his grace and mercy too. Because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right throne, God's wrath towards his, those that trust in Christ is put away. We need not fear God's presence anymore in a way that would scare us from going to his presence, but rather it draws us closer to himself. He says, come, sit with me. Enjoy my presence. The righteous, righteous wrath of God is satisfied for those in Christ, and now we have unfettered access to the overflowing grace of God. It's interesting that in Hebrews 4, which many of you know that we can draw near to God, to the throne of grace. It's no longer the throne of wrath, but the throne of grace. This is what Jesus has opened up for us. Look, and this plan was God's plan throughout. It, it was, the, the, the old covenant was to teach God's people and wait for the coming one. Practically speaking, it's saying that the law had a purpose, but it's not the end of the story, and it was never meant to be. And this is good news for us in this room. Nearness to God does not come through a legal system that we have no connection to. Now, I'm going to take a big jump out here, but I don't think many people in this room have Jewish roots. Like, we're not connected to the law. But that doesn't mean we don't have access because Jesus opens the doors for us. It's not just based on his descent, not just based on his, the lineage, it's rather to all who would call on his name. Every tribe, nation, and tongue. And it's through the, this ultimate forever high priest that, that we have this new and better covenant, a new paradigm. And it comes not just by this system that God creates, but it comes by an oath. Did you hear how many times he says, uses that word oath? The author highlights the fact that God himself has sworn. So if he doesn't keep his promise, he is not worthy to be trusted. He isn't God at all. But by, he swears by his very self, I have taken an oath to state that there will be a priest in the line of Melchizedek that will serve forever. That's the importance of Psalm 110. He didn't make such an oath to the Levitical priests. It's on this basis of God's fixed word that the author concludes Jesus' work as a priest guarantees a better covenant. And this better covenant was, was foretold about in Jeremiah 31, where, where God's law would be written on our hearts, not just on tablets. That our sins would be forgiven and remembered no more. That we will know God. That he will be our God and we will be his people. Jesus' work opens up these covenantal promises, these new covenantal promises for all of his people. 
And here's the best part. He never stops opening them up because he continues forever in this role. He stands always as the risen Christ and says, come to the Father through me. The former priests in verse 23 were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer a sacrifice daily, first for his own sin and then for those of, his other, of, of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is able to save to the uttermost. completely at all times, no matter how far gone you've been. And he lives to make intercession. It is his delight. And he is fitting in this work because Jesus is a high priest that completely meets our needs. He stands for us because unlike us, he is holy. He's innocent. He's unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He is the one who has truly earned the right to stand before God in, in his holiness and his righteousness because he himself is perfectly holy and righteous. And by, through his sacrifice, he has opened the door for us to stand there as well. You see, Jesus is a better high priest because the priestly order is better. It's established by an oath from God because it continues forever. Because it's based on a better covenant. Because Jesus' character and his life is better. Jesus is the better high priest. Look, that was a lot. Let's land the plane and say, like, so what? What does this mean that Jesus is my high priest? I have five things, and I'm going to go quickly. He's one, he's my high priest because he's my perfect mediator. I can't stand before God on my own. Neither can you. No one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You often say, well, I think God will accept me because I've been good. No, but he's perfect and requires perfection. The Westminster Catechism famously says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We're made to be in God's presence, but sin has separated us from it. We cannot rightly enjoy God's presence. But by his grace, he didn't leave us alone. Instead, he pursued us. Jesus came to bring us back to God. Being fully God and fully man, he was the only one who could satisfy the righteous requirements of God. And he came as God among us for the purpose of restoring all that had been lost. He truly is the way, the truth of life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. 
through his mediatorial work as our great high priest. Is he yours? He says, you can come because I am your perfect mediator. Come and know the glory of God and enjoy enjoy him forever by coming to me. He is my perfect mediator. He's the one who can stand before God for me. And God, uh, he can stand for me before God and God before me. He brings us to God. Two, he joyfully welcomes you again and again. Do you know that? Jesus as your high priest isn't going, again, dude? Are you serious? No matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter how long you've done it, Jesus says, come to me and find rest, salvation, freedom, joy. Come to me and enjoy the presence of God and enjoy him forever. I heard something that stuck in my head this week. We, we tend to hold guilt and shame like a sponge while we hold grace like water in our hands. It leaks. Grace leaks, but shame sticks, doesn't it? If you're like me, this often results in saying, I'm too dirty, God. It, it, it results in the drift. Because, eh, yeah, but i got to clean myself up first. Yeah, but it often drives us away from others as well. But it certainly drifts, causes us to drift away from God. When I sin, when I lose my patience with my kids, when I fail to love Kirsten well, when I speak harshly, my tendency is to withdraw. Do you feel that too? When you know that you failed yet again, do you think do you think withdrawal from the Lord would be better? Try to manage it by yourself. I think we think this way because we think that he's had enough of us. He, 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 that he'll treat us the way that we often treat others with disgust and impatience. But But what we see here is that Jesus lives to make intercession. He can save to the uttermost. We can draw near to him with confidence anytime, any place, in any any circumstance, and he welcomes us to his throne of grace. So, brothers and sisters, go to him for forgiveness. Whether it's the first time you committed that sin or the thousandth, go to him because he welcomes you. Go to him for wisdom in your marriage, at your work, with your parenting. Go to him. He says, come to me. Let let, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in a time of need. He says, if you need wisdom, come to me. That's what I am as your great high priest. I give you access to God. You can have the very presence of God himself. Go to him for comfort. He is the God of all comforts. And he says, come to me. I stand and I, I, I am, through me, you, you receive the fullness of God's comfort. Go to him in worship and thanksgiving. He welcomes us to joyfully come to him again and again. That's how we don't drift. 
By holding fast to Christ, by remembering who he is as our great high priest, it drives us to him and says, I have access to the very God of the universe through Jesus Christ. What would we become if we lived a life that constantly ran to Jesus instead of running to our busyness? I love having headphones in, but I think it's ruined me. I'm never, I hate silence now. I run to busy, I run to distraction, I, we run to our phones. We run to shopping. We love that Amazon truck. We run to alcohol, we run to pornography. Just a little taste. And you know, brothers and sisters, we gotta get t- serious and talk about weed. It gets legal. You're gonna go get some gummies and that'll make me feel better for a couple hours? Like, we gotta talk about that. Because I think we're running. We run to the approval of others. If they're good with me, then God's good with me, I'm fine. Brothers, and I think sisters too, video games, distraction, Netflix, and the list goes on. What would we, what would we be if we'd rather, in those moments of, 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 of sadness and guilt and shame and, 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 and confusion and, and longing for comfort, and, and what if we ran to the throne of grace, to the one who is the great high priest who stands in the very presence of God and says, come and be filled? What would we be? then we'd be more joyful, we'd be more resilient, we'd be more grounded. And we can do so because he totally gets you. You're not an annoyance, you're not a pest, you're not a piece of scum to Jesus. He doesn't think this because he totally gets you. He knows firsthand all that this world has to throw at you. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as you are, yet he did not sin. He knows the temptations. He knows the pulls. He knows the pressures. He knows the pain. He knows the sorrows of this life. What we see is that Jesus is a high priest who totally gets you. And he has, as a result, he has what you need. This world is hard and uncertain and full of all sorts of troubles. The world in Jesus' day was no different. Again, he suffered. He was exhausted. He was misunderstood. He was rejected. He was tortured and tormented. He, he was plotted against. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He had all these experiences, and, and he's come all the way through them. So amidst, he dragged them all the way to the bottom of what they really are. And on account of his finished work and his role as high priest, he offers grace and help. We need grace because we know we need forgiveness. And and we need his grace as a daily reminder of his love. And he has it in heaps, grace upon grace. He gives his people. He knows what we need to help too. We cannot live out the Christian life on our own. And I would even say that we can't even live it well in any sense, live life in any sense on our own. And Jesus stands ready to help. He knows it's hard. He goes, I'm here to help. Melchizedek, after that battle, brings out bread and wine to Abraham for refreshment and for nourishment. You know what Jesus gives us? Bread and wine, but better. The bread and wine, which is his body and blood. The body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us, that makes us whole and holy. 
that truly nourishes and sustains his people, not just now, but forevermore. He forgives us and washes us clean and guides us. He knows what we need and he's strong enough for us. He is our strong anchor that holds. He is the solid ground on which we can stand even when everything else gives way. What the writer of Hebrews has been saying, there's none better, there's none greater, none more capable than Jesus. Brothers, sisters, because Jesus is our great high priest, this is from chapter 10, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance and faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here it is. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful, and he holds us fast. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus is greater, that he is better, that he is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens and brings his people to the throne room of God that we might experience his grace and help, fullness and joy, forgiveness and mercy. Father, if there are those who have never trusted in Jesus as the, as their great high priest, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, allow them to see the greatness of Jesus. Father, I thank you for those who have, who have received the finished work of Christ. I pray that you would help us not to drift away, but rather hold fast to the anchor, hold fast to Christ, our great high priest. It's in his name we pray. Amen.